0: It is a joy to be with you over the next two days and to see all that God has in store over Gospel Camp. How's my volume right now? Can you guys hear me okay? Yes, sir. All right. My wife says that I have a loud voice, so I tend to take her word for it. But just wanted to make sure that it was coming through loud and clearly today. Um, As I'm sure you've already known, as you see in those beautifully designed workbooks, we're going to have a total of four lessons over the course of the weekend. And each of those lessons is going to be devoted to covering one of the most important themes associated with the Gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what this camp, that's what this weekend is all about. It's about the Gospel message. You see, the Gospel message is at the center of the entire Bible, and it can literally be preached anywhere from the Old and New Testaments. But for this weekend, as I was prayerfully considering where I thought the Lord would have for us to go during our time together, I kept being drawn to the same text, It's a text that many of you may be familiar with. It's Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 to 14. That's where we're going to be over the next four lessons together. Lord willing, we'll cover all those verses in great detail. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 to 14. It's interesting to note that out of every passage in Scripture, this particular text stands out in terms of setting forth the glories of God's grace and the riches of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the Mount Everest of New Testament passages regarding the gospel and regarding the glory of God. It's a passage that for many theologians and Christians throughout the ages, this text radically and fundamentally transformed their life. And I pray that by the end of this weekend, it might do the same for you. In fact, there was one prominent theologian, uh, the 19th century, who described this passage in the following way. Listen to these words. I'm trying to whet your appetite and pique your interest as to the significance of where God is going to be taking us this weekend. He described the passage we'll be studying like this Ephesians 1 1 to 14 is a marvelously concise yet comprehensive summary of the Christian good news. And its implications. Who can read it without being moved to wonder, worship, and consistency of life to the glory of God? And I think if I were to have to set forth what my goals are for this week, and it would be encapsulated in that quote, that we would be moved to wonder over the character and the works carried out by the triune God in salvation. That we would be moved to worship God for all that He has accomplished through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that we would in turn devote every aspect of our lives to glorifying God on a consistent basis. That we would wonder over God and His works. That we would worship God for who He is and all that He's done for us in Christ. And that our lives would be transformed to be who He's called us to be as His people. And of course, if you don't know Christ at this time... As Dustin said by way of introduction, our prayers is that you would come to encounter the living God and surrender your life to His Lordship after our time together at Gospel Camp. So having said that by way of overview, you'll also probably see in your workbooks if you haven't yet, I've went ahead and titled the, uh, the, the four sermons or the four lessons that we're going to be having over the course of this week. And I've titled those and they correspond with the main theme that's going to be unpacked in each of those lessons. So for our first lesson, the one that we're going to be going through here in verses 1 and 2, I've decided to, to summarize the main theme of those two verses like this. The gospel is reserved for sinners. That's where we're going to start tonight. The gospel is reserved for sinners. I guess it's technically still afternoon, but it is p.m., so you'll have to bear with me here um, on the time. So gospel is reserved for sinners. That's where we're going here in a few moments. Verses 1 and 2. Later this evening, after you get your bellies full and hopefully we get you tired out a little bit from the games in a few hours, we're going to see from verses 3 to 6 that the gospel is rooted in eternity past. Verses 3 to 6, the gospel is rooted in eternity past. That's what we're going to look into in a few hours. Tomorrow morning, in our study of verses 7 and 10, you'll notice this again in your workbooks, we're going to consider how the gospel is realized in the person and work of Jesus Christ the gospel is realized in Jesus Christ as Paul sets forth in verses 7 to 10 of Ephesians 1 and lastly before you return to your parents tomorrow the last session we'll have in this text will be found in verses 11 to 14 and that particular theme I summarized it as the gospel is revelation of God's glory the gospel is is revelation of God's glory. And what an appropriate theme to conclude our weekend together. Looking forward to getting into this text. How about you guys? Just making sure you're still awake. I know it's hot, so I'll try to engage you if I feel that you're starting to nod off or lose interest. But in any case, hopefully that's not a problem for most of you here. Let's turn to the Word of God now and see the big picture of the passage we're going to be devoting four lessons to. Probably going to be about an hour and a half or so worth of material uh, when you combine all four lessons together. I'm not going to preach for an hour and a half tonight. Um, Each message should be about 45 minutes or so. But we're going to have the opportunity to really dive into the weeds of a very rich New Testament passage. So what I think will help us as we navigate this text, before we get into the specific verses with each lesson, We're just going to read the whole passage. We're going to read all 14 verses of Ephesians 1 that we'll be covering, and then we'll zero in on the key passage that we'll be focusing on with each lesson. This first one being the gospel is reserved for sinners. So if you have your Bibles open to Ephesians 1, follow along as I read. Of course, if you don't have your Bible open to that passage yet, please do so. Uh, It's been well noted. I actually quoted this to Dustin before we started. You don't need to look at me. You don't need to look at your neighbor. All you need to see this weekend during these lessons is God's Word in front of you and your outline. It's going to help you track with what I'll be teaching. Listen to my voice, look at the Word of God, and lock in on what we have to consider from this rich passage of Scripture. Ephesians 1, beginning in verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God... To the saints who are at Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him in love "...He made known to us the mystery of His will according to His kind intention which He purposed in Him, with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth. In Christ also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to His purpose, who works all things after the counsel of His will." to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of His glory. In Christ, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance, with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of His glory." This is the word of the living God. May He write its eternal truth upon our hearts this weekend. God Himself gives Himself in order to save sinners from Himself. As revealed from Genesis to Revelation, from the beginning of the Bible to the end of the Bible, that is the Gospel message summarized in just 11 words. God Himself gives himself in order to save sinners from himself. That's really just an expansion of the five-word gospel summary that we find expressed in Jonah 2.9. Some of you may have this memorized. Salvation is from the Lord. My friends, the biblical gospel is a declaration of good news. Let me just set forth to you how the Bible unpacks or presents to us the gospel. The gospel is a declaration of good news. It is the good news that the High King of Heaven has accomplished the greatest rescue mission in the history of the universe. It's the good news that the second person of the eternal triune God was born of a virgin, assumed a true human nature as Jesus of Nazareth, and lived a perfect life without sin. This Jesus, fully God, fully man, died on a Roman cross and bore the wrath of God in the place of every sinner who would ever place their faith in Him so that God could treat the believer as though they had lived Christ's perfect, sinless life. So that they could be forgiven of all of their sins committed before a holy God. For every believer, Jesus was treated on the cross as if He had lived their sinful life in order that God, being rich in mercy and yet just, perfectly righteous, could treat the believer as though they had lived Christ's perfect life and perfect conformity to His law. But that's not all, my friends. After Christ's death, after bearing God's wrath in the place of every believer, past, present, and future, Jesus was buried And He was raised from the dead three days after His crucifixion. And in doing so, He perfectly fulfilled every Old Testament passage, every Old Testament prophecy that was recorded about the Messiah in the Old Testament. And some 40 days after being raised from the dead, this Jesus, this ascended, resurrected Messiah, He appeared to more than 500 people. People like you and me, regular people. And after doing so, after showing forth the manifestation of the glory of God as demonstrated in His power over sin and death, He ascended to the right hand of God in heaven. And right now, as surely as I preach today and tomorrow, every day of our lives, Jesus Christ, is seated at the right hand of God, reigning as the King of kings and Lord of lords, and someday He will come back again to judge the living and the dead. He will rule over all of reality, both now and for eternity future. That's the Gospel message in a nutshell. Genesis to Revelation, that is the truth of the good news of Jesus Christ. It's the promise that the God who is under no obligation to redeem any sinners like you and me, willingly and freely accepts the payment of a substitute, the perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ, who John the Baptist declared as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Gospel is the promise That God accepts payment by that substitute, Jesus Christ. And Christ willingly laid His life down for every person who would ever believe. That God's just wrath would be eternally and perfectly satisfied through His death on the cross some 2,000 years ago. This is the gospel that will undergird all of what we discussed this weekend. I wanted to set it out clearly for you before we get too far into the weeds of Ephesians 1. If you're a Christian here today, this message, this is the story, this is the truth of how God rescued you from the eternal pit of hell. He rescued you from having to bear His wrath for your sins committed against Him. And He has satisfied all of that wrath in the person of Christ. Your debt has been paid. Your sins have been forgiven. You have a Father in Heaven by his grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Conversely, if you're here today and you don't know Christ, you may not acknowledge him as your Lord and Savior. You may not confess him as your Lord and Savior, but rest assured, he is your Lord. And someday, if you don't bow the knee to him in repentance and faith, he will sentence you to everlasting torment in hell, the lake of fire, where you will be exposed to the full, unmitigated wrath of God. The perfect execution of divine justice for your transgressions, for your disobedience committed against Him. So this gospel demands a response from all of us. It demands a response from everybody who would be exposed to its truths. And it's interesting to note that here at the beginning of Ephesians, right in the opening verses, we're given two case studies to show a direct application of of how this gospel message radically transforms sinners like you and me. Two case studies to show how this gospel transforms sinners like you and me, rescues sinners like you and me from the condemnation and judgment that we so rightly deserve from God. Case study number one. The first case study that we'll consider in this text focuses on a man by the name of Paul. The Apostle Paul, a man who would become arguably the greatest Christian of all time. A man who, prior to his conversion in the first century world, was one of, if not the most significant opponent to Christianity. We're going to consider how the Gospel radically transformed this man from a God-hater to the greatest ambassador for the kingdom of God who ever lived, apart from Christ Himself. Case study number two that we'll be considering from the opening two verses. Focusing on the Ephesian believers who originally received this letter. People like you and me and your parents who worshipped God in the first century. We're going to see how this gospel message transformed them from a life and culture of paganism and set them on the course to worship and serve the Most High in every aspect of their lives. And what's going to be the common denominator of these case studies? How do they ultimately come together? Well, they come together in this way. Both the Apostle Paul and these first century Christians living in Ephesus, they did absolutely nothing to earn their salvation. They did nothing in and of themselves to merit favor with God. There was nothing in them to make themselves appealing to God. In fact, it could be well said, the only thing they contributed to their salvation was simply this. They committed the sin that made their salvation necessary. So, as we'll so- soon see together today, every person, and every place, and every period of time throughout human history is in dire need Of this gospel. This is two case studies that have direct application to every person who would ever read this passage. But here's what I want you to note, my friends, and I want this to be at the forefront of your mind as we spend time together this weekend. Only those who recognize their own sinfulness, only those who recognize their desperate need for forgiveness of their sin, only those who recognize their need for a savior will ultimately respond to the gospel and faith. If you don't see your sin in light of a holy God, if you don't see how desperate you are for forgiveness and mercy and grace from your Creator, you will not care about anything that I say this weekend. It will go in one ear and out the other at worst, or maybe at best rather, at worst you'll gain a lot of head knowledge and you'll continue to live however you want to live. So this is a challenge. This is a summons for all of us, preacher included. Heed the words that Paul wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit some 2,000 years ago. Surrender your life to the gospel message. Do not leave here hardened. Recognize your true spirituality against the clear teaching of God's Word. With that being said, let's consider the first half of verse 1. Case study number one from the first half of verse one. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. As I mentioned moments ago, there are few characters in all of Scripture and few people in all of human history for that matter more famous or more influential than the Apostle Paul. I want this to sink into your soul this afternoon. First, Paul was one of 13 men who served in the role of Apostle. The word Apostle literally means one who is sent, and it's a term that refers to a special role that Christ gave to certain men who served Him and walked alongside Him during the first century. They were, as Ephesians 2.20 says, the foundation of the church. All of our doctrine as believers, in terms of the New Testament was established through the teaching and authority of these apostles, one of which being Paul, the figure we'll be considering in this first case study. Now, how did these men become apostles? What did the process look like? Well, we find that in Matthew 28, verses 18 to 20, and Acts 1, verse 8, when Jesus was about to ascend into heaven after being raised from the dead, He commissioned a group of disciples to go and make other disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Of that group, we find that there were 11 men who were uh, appointed to serve in the role of apostle. Later on, in the book of Acts, we find that a man by the name of Matthias would fulfill the role of Judas after Judas committed suicide. And then... Christ would appear to Paul on the road to Damascus in doing so, saving him from his sin and appointing him to serve in the role of apostle. Now, what did an apostle do? Well, I mentioned that they they, they laid the foundation, they established the doctrine and practice of the early church. But let me get to the nuts and bolts of how this affects our lives today as Christians. In God's eternal plan... He allowed there to be 27 books that would comprise what we call the New Testament. These books, these works found in the New Testament were particularly designed to testify to the person and work of Jesus Christ and to set forth how Christians should live and think about their relationship to God and about how they should think in terms of their relationship to other believers, and then how they should go forth into the world and bear witness to the gospel. Now, here's what's the interesting fact about the New Testament those 27 books, each of them were written either by an apostle or they were written by somebody who was either under the direct supervision of an apostle or worked in close proximity. To an apostle. So the New Testament that you and I have today, it came either directly from an apostle or from somebody who was rubbing shoulders with the apostles for many, many years. And when we think about the Apostle Paul, do we why does any of this matter? Well, think about this. Out of the 27 books that you and I have in our New Testament, 13 of them were explicitly attributed to to Paul's authorship. He wrote 13 of the 27 books directly. On top of that, there's at least three other New Testament books that Paul either supervised the writing of or, in the case of the book of Hebrews, some scholars believe that he actually wrote that, but the book itself does not testify to him writing it. In any case, 16 of your 27 books in our New Testament came from this first man, Paul. So how important is Paul? Why should we care? Let me put it to you this way. More than half of what you and I have in the New Testament comes from this man. You take away the Apostle Paul, you take away the majority of the New Testament. But let's take religion outside of the spectrum for a minute. I know this is uh, something that might scare you a bit coming from the preacher, but think very practically for a second. Okay? According to a 2019 study by Pew Research, there's an estimated 2.5 billion people in the world who identify as either Roman Catholic, Eastern Orthodox, or Protestant Christianity. Okay? So, regardless of denomination, regardless of our very important disagreements across those denominational lines, 2.5 billion people in our world today. ...are continually influenced by this person who lived 2,000 years ago. 2.5 billion people, a third of this planet's population. That is an astounding impact for one man to have over world history. third of the earth to this day, regardless of their denomination... ...they are directly impacted, at least by their own profession... By Paul. So Paul's a big deal. And Paul has influenced many, many billions of people throughout the 2,000 years that we've had elapsed since the first century. Tens of billions of people impacted by Paul. But Paul never thought of himself as that big of a deal. He certainly was, but that never was something that he embraced as his mindset. We find through the totality of the New Testament, particularly what Paul writes here in verse 1, that Paul did not see himself as a self-made man. He he didn't see himself as somebody who just pulled himself up by his bootstraps and figured out the whole religion thing. He, He did not view himself as being inherently worthy or deserving of his title as an apostle. He didn't seek out to build his platform or amass a great following. He didn't do any of those things at all, but... Notice what he does say that he thought about himself. Notice his own perspective of his identity. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by my own will, by my own strength, by my own right, by my own value? No, he says, I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. You see, Paul had a right view of self when understanding his sin and his unworthiness before a holy God. He knew of all the Christians he had persecuted up to the point of being thrown in prison and put to death. He knew of his own limitations and his own frailties and his own shortcomings in light of the holiness of God. He recognized that he did nothing to earn or deserve his salvation. Rather, he was who he was solely and exclusively by the sovereign grace of God. Of God. Notice what Paul writes, 1 Timothy 1, verses 15 to 16. If you have your Bible, slip over there. This is a powerful text. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 15 and 16. This is how Paul viewed himself as a Christian when meditating on the character of God, his life prior to salvation and even currently as a Christian he wrote these words roughly around the same time he wrote the book of Ephesians most scholars note early to mid 60's probably on both but Paul says this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit he he says it is a trustworthy statement deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom I am foremost of all I am foremost of all, Paul says. Verse 16. Yet for this reason I found mercy, so that in me, as the foremost of sinners, me as the greatest sinner that I know of or can think of, I was saved for this reason, Paul says, so that Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example of those who would believe in him for eternal life. Do you see what Paul's saying there? He's saying that if God could save somebody as wretched and as sinful as Him, then He could certainly save other sinners as well. He could save people like you and me. Terrible, wicked, God-dishonoring creatures. Those who fail to love God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, which is what we are all required to do. This is why... I chose to title this text in part as the Gospel is reserved for sinners. You've got to get this thought in your mind to be a Christian. You have to recognize that you have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's what it means to sin. It means to miss the mark. It means to fail in thought, word, and deed. To give God everything that He's worthy of receiving, which as those who've been created in His image, it's everything in our life. It's to fail to give everything in our life to Him, to His authority, to worship and serve Him wherever He might call us. Maybe you're sitting here tonight. I mean, how bad can I be, right? I mean, I'm homeschooled. My parents are Christians. I've heard the truth of God's Word my whole life. I mean, yeah, sure. uh, You know, my parents get on to me every now and then, but... Surely I'm not a sinner. I mean, you're talking about a guy that persecuted Christians and put them to death. Yeah, he he really is a sinner. Well, the Bible doesn't make any distinction as to any human being as being less needy of the gospel of God's grace. Notice some of the key texts that testify to that reality. Every one of us needs what Paul needed. We need forgiveness. We need grace. We need mercy. For those of you who don't know those terms, grace is getting something you don't deserve to receive. Mercy is not getting what we deserve to receive. We need forgiveness. Okay. We need eternal life in heaven. That's grace. We need mercy. We need to escape God's punishment of our sins in hell. But let's look at some verses. Note these in your workbooks for a second. These are some really good texts to meditate on and to take home with you. This is the universality of sin. 1 Kings 8.46 There is no man who does not sin. Does that mean that homeschool kids don't sin, but those public school kids are the ones that commit all the sin? I was a public school kid, so I can pick on the public schoolers. No, all men. All men sin. Romans 3.10-12 There is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is no one who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. So not only are we all sinful, according to Scripture, we don't even seek after God in and of ourselves. We don't want God because He's holy. He's perfect in righteousness. He has the absolute epitome of moral perfection, which is everything we're not. We fall short every single day. Romans 3.23. All of sin and fall short of the glory of God. James 2.10. Okay, maybe you're here today. This one is for some of you kids, because I know some of you kids are really, really good compared to other kids. There's no question about that. Phoenix is in his head. He thinks he's going to beat the mold here. Yeah, I'm a pretty good kid. Well, get this. James 2.10. Another important verse. Just by committing one sin, you forfeit every right You lose all hope of being acceptable before God. To commit one sin is to break the totality of God's law in the sense that you have violated what the law demands, which is perfection. That little white lie that you've told, that time you stole your brother's cookie that mom had promised. I know Phoenix has done that a few times. The time you've stolen something from another person, no matter how trivial it might be, that time you looked at a member of the opposite sex with lust in your heart, that time that you've said God's name in vain or cussed in your own mind, that time that you spent time to watch your favorite TV show or be on social media instead of prioritizing prayer and God's Word. Many, many other instances that I could cite. Any time in which you fail to love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, you're committing sin. And you know what the Bible teaches? Not one of us has ever done that or will ever do that that's how desperately wicked we are that's how much we need God's mercy and grace that's how much we need the gospel. so if you leave here this weekend I hope we've made this much abundantly clear you may not respond to the gospel in faith for whatever reason you may have for your unbelief but know this Bible is absolutely clear. If you have sinned against God, you are under His judgment, and you need forgiveness. Otherwise, you're going to spend eternity in hell. And that is a horrific thought to consider. May it be known when we leave here this weekend, we all need a Savior. But isn't that what makes salvation so glorious? Whereas the wages of sin is death, the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Do you want to be forgiven of your sins? Right now, today. I don't know. I don't, have, I don't have goggles that can see the state of your heart. I don't know many of you. I don't know anything about your life. But here's what I do know. God's power to save is far greater than your power to sin against Him. So if you're willing to surrender your life to His Lordship, if you're willing to turn away from your sin in repentance, your lifestyle of living however you want to live, and like Paul serve you, serve God in however He calls you to. If that is the cry of your heart this weekend, then I just plead with you to cry out to God in faith. Within the quiet of your own heart, ask God to forgive you of all wrongdoing. Ask Him to strengthen you to serve Him for all of your life for His glory alone. Recognize your utter need and desperation for salvation. If you do that, that's the cry of your heart. You can be forgiven of your sins. You can know God and you can walk with Him both now and for all of eternity future. That would be my plea to you, that you would be received as an adopted son or daughter in Christ by coming to Him through faith. Like Paul, have a right view of self in light of the holiness of God, respond appropriately, cast yourself at the feet of the cross. Let Christ be the Lord of your life, because He's your Lord regardless of if you recognize Him or not. You just need to surrender to Him and spare, be spared of God's eternal judgment. That's the first half of verse 1. Case study number 1. Considering how the Gospel rescued Paul from the wrath of God. Considering how he was radically transformed from a God-hater to a lover of the Most High. For the remainder of our time together in this first lesson, let's look now at the Ephesian believers. Case study number 2. The Ephesian believers, and this might hit more closely to home for some of us, because I mean, let's face it, none of us are probably ever going to be as influential as the Apostle Paul, right? I mean, maybe some, maybe some of you guys in here might have a great ministry, but Paul's a pretty tough guy to measure up to, right? So maybe this next case study will hit a little bit closer to home. These are ordinary people like you and me, your parents, your siblings, even me and Dustin, men who serve in ministry, ordinary believers. Let's look at how the gospel transformed their life. Notice the rest of verse 1 and verse 2 again with me in your Bibles. Paul writes, To the saints who are at Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So what can we learn from these one and a half verses? What do we learn about the gospel in considering these original recipients. Well, in order to understand what Paul's saying here, it does help to have an idea of the historical context in which he wrote the book of Ephesians. I mentioned moments ago, most scholars, most conservative Bible-believing Christian scholars would date this book to between the years of 60 and 62 A.D. So early 60s A.D., roughly 30 years after Christ ascended into heaven. And... In order for us to fully grasp what Paul's saying here, I want to give you guys a challenge, okay? I want you to, as it were, jump into a time machine with me in, in your imagination. I didn't wheel a time machine here today. But in your own imagination, I want you to travel with me back some 1900... My mask's a little bit off. 1970-ish years, 1960-ish years back in the past. And what we're going to do is we're going to remember, as we travel back to the first century, when Paul writes this letter, he's addressing real people who had real families, real jobs, real emotions. They lived in a real place. This isn't a fairy tale. This is real history. Keep that in mind as we look at this second case study. So we're in our time machine. We're visualizing ourselves living in the first century. And where are we going? Well, we're going to a place called Ephesus. Ephesus was one of the largest cities in the Roman Empire at this period in history. It's estimated that at this time there's about 200,000 people living in Ephesus. So, good comparison for our day would be like Houston, okay? Very prosperous city, a lot of people, a lot of families and businesses wanted to locate themselves in Ephesus because it was a great place to live if you chose to steward your resources well, if you chose to apply yourself to the glory of God in your workplace and in your family, you could really do well for yourself in Ephesus. Just like Houston or Dallas or San Antonio, a lot of great cities in just our state alone that many Christians experience thriving lives and thriving businesses. Well, we also know that in any major U.S. city in our day, just think of Houston, Corpus Christi, maybe. I don't know how big it is in, in relation to Houston, but think about Houston. A lot of good there, but also a lot of sin, right? A lot of opportunity to get into trouble. A lot of opportunity to serve idols and to satisfy the lust of the flesh and the eyes and the pride of life. Same was true of Ephesus back in the middle of the first century. We find in Acts chapter 19, verses 13 to 19. That Ephesus was a city particularly marked by witchcraft and sexual immorality. Those are the two big sins that undergirded Ephesus. Witchcraft and sexual immorality. I know Houston, there's probably witchcraft in pockets, but there's a lot of sexual immorality in Houston and other major U.S. cities. So think about, again, we're we're in our time machine. We're going back to the first century here. We're in Ephesus. Ephesus. All this witchcraft, all this sexual immorality. But here's the worst part. In the center of Ephesus, there was a giant temple there. And in that temple, citizens of Ephesus would congregate and they would offer sacrifices to the goddess Artemis, a Greek goddess who, according to the Greek pantheon, which is a false religion of course, but according to the Greek pantheon of gods, you had Artemis who was the goddess of Fertility. So in this temple, in width, it was bigger than a football field in height. It was about 60 feet tall. You could see it from miles away. Citizens of Ephesus would go into this temple and they would engage in gross acts of sexual immorality all with the desire to appease this goddess of fertility who doesn't even exist. It was a place of rampant idolatry Rampant witchcraft, rampant sexual immorality. This is the context that I want you to have in your mind as we now engage with the text of what Paul writes. This is a wicked, wicked place. Notice what Paul writes again. Notice how he addresses these people living in this part of the world. The saints who are at Ephesus... And who are faithful in Christ Jesus. Now now wait a second. Dude, I thought you just said that this was such a horrific place. How how could Paul call these people saints? Could anything good come out of Ephesus? Well, my friends, that's the power of the gospel. These first century Ephesian Christians were transformed by the gospel from lives of idolatry, lives of witchcraft, lives of sexual immorality, lives of striving to satisfy their own desires, wanting nothing to do with God. And what happened? They became trophies of His grace. These people were no better than anybody in Ephesus. Many of them would have paid homage to the goddess Artemis, that false deity. They were not any better than their Ephesian neighbors. They did not earn their salvation. They weren't smarter than their neighbor. They had nothing to bring to the table like Paul. These were ordinary, sinful people like you and me. But God chose to lavish them with forgiveness. He chose to extend grace, undeserved favor to them. He chose to withhold His wrath. He chose to take out their heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh. He gave them eyes to see the truth of the gospel. He gave them ears to hear. He gave them a heart to believe. Notice how Paul describes that in verse 2. This is how salvation occurs. These are three fundamental realities of the gospel in verse 2 of Ephesians 1. Notice, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. At the appointed time, these Ephesian Christians recognized their need for the gospel, and then they placed their trust in the one who God sent to ransom sinners like you and me. And Paul notes this. How salvation accomplished. How did the gospel transform my life and the Ephesians' life? He says, grace is the means of salvation. God's grace is the source Of the salvation of every single person who will ever be saved peace with god is the result of salvation god lavishes a sinner with undeserved favor he gives them eyes to see their own sinfulness in light of his holiness and he gives them the gift of faith and repentance so they might respond and trust in jesus christ and be forgiven of their sins and what happens at that moment their slate is wiped clean. They're clothed in the perfect righteousness of Christ. His blood washes away their iniquity. He cancels out the certificate of debt and he stamps on his approval as an adopted son or daughter. He makes them into a new creature. His grace is the source. Peace with God is the result of the gospel. And then what happens? we have salvation. We have salvation. We have eternal communion and rest for our souls. And that's what we're going to be talking about over the next three lessons. We're going to be really unpacking these rich truths that we find in seed form here in verse 2. We're going to see how salvation ultimately intersects with the grace of God We're going to see how salvation intersects with the person and work of Jesus Christ and how that brings about peace with Him. And of course, as we should note in all of Scripture, we're going to see how the Gospel intersects with the glory of God. We're going to see God magnified in this text over the next three studies. So I leave you with this. I leave you with this. We're going to have some time to, to eat and fellowship, and we're going to have a second lesson later tonight. I really want you to do business with the Lord, though, as you have opportunities. Think about the universality of sin. We've all sinned. You are a sinner. I'm a sinner. We are deserving of nothing other than God's wrath. Okay? I hope that I've made that clear. If I haven't made anything else clear, I hope you take away from this message that you are a sinner. You need salvation. You need forgiveness. And if you have not surrendered yourself to Jesus Christ, if He's not currently your Lord and Savior as evidenced by you, placing your faith in Him, if you have not made a commitment to live how He desires you to live as outlined in His Word, then my challenge to you is, what are you waiting for? You recognize that you have no hope in and of yourself. What is causing you to live for yourself? What is causing you to spurn the grace of God? What's causing you from surrendering to be the man or woman He's created you to be? That He's calling you to be even today? And if you're here this week and you, you know Christ, because I know some of you guys quite well and I know you're walking with the Lord. My challenge for you is this. Use this weekend as an opportunity to really grow, as Dustin said earlier, in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to be covering arguably the richest passage of Scripture in the New Testament. What a privilege we have to study God's inspired Word. What a privilege we have then to take this knowledge, take this truth, and share it with our friends, family, and relatives. Use this weekend... Use gospel camp, believer, as an opportunity to grow in your sanctification and to be a more effective and motivated follower of Christ as you leave this place. And may it all be done to the glory of God. Let me close in prayer, and then we can dismiss as as Dustin feels led to do so. Let's pray, though, and we'll be dismissed. Father, as we've now clearly seen from the testimony of Scripture, We find that you did not send your son into this world to save good people. For just as a healthy person does not see a need for a doctor, so also does a self-righteous person not see themselves as having a need to be forgiven of their sins. Father, it's because of those truths that we can rightly note the gospel is reserved for sinners. It's not for good people. Good people will never see their need for a savior. Self-righteous people will never bow their knee to a holy God. Only those who rightly recognize their desperate condition before You can receive Your mercy and grace and salvation through faith in Christ. So Father, I pray that every person attending Gospel Camp this weekend would rightly see their sin in in light of Your holiness before You, Father, that they would know that they have nothing to bring before you other than the sin that makes salvation necessary. And in doing so, Father, I pray, Lord God, that after having a right recognition of who they are, that they would throw themselves upon your mercy and grace, your forgiveness, your redeeming love, all that is made manifest through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Oh, Father, I pray you would save some this weekend, even today, for those who have recognized their need to be forgiven. And Father, I pray that this weekend will ultimately result in us walking in lifestyles of gratitude, devoted to your glory. We have such great facilities to enjoy this weekend. We'll have great food. We'll have a lot of fun playing games. We thank you for your kindness in giving us the privilege to do that amongst dear friends. Keep us safe now, Lord, as we prepare to eat and as we prepare to discuss the lesson and play and do everything that we need to do before returning here for our second lesson tonight. We commit the rest of this evening to you, Father, and ask that it would be pleasing in your sight. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.